Ciao and benvenuto to this week's Minterview series. Team Min discuss Casenza, Campanilismo and Dribblaggio with Tobias Jones, author of Ultra, the underworld of Italian football. Myself, Sarah and David learn about Bucci, Boccia and Freud's narcissism of minor differences. We hope you enjoy. Hi Tobias. Hello. Tobias is a Somerset boy, um, schooled in Oxford. We brought him on this week to discuss his book, Ultra. He's also uh, author of Dark Heart of Italy, Utopian Dreams, The Salati Case, White Death, Blood on the Altar, Death of a Showgirl and A Place of Refuge, quite the collection. He also writes for The Guardian and he's got a number of different articles. But more importantly, he's an Evertonian and also a, <laughs> a Parma fan. And I, I'm not sure if I can pronounce this right. Is it Crociati? I looked at the nickname of Parma today. Yeah, the Crociati. So that just means the cross, that, you know, they're the crossed ones. Okay, cool. Um, so, like, before we start and get into Ultra, how, like, tell us more about your sort of love for Everton. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's a bit strange. I'm a, I'm a Somerset boy, as you, as you say, but uh, my grandparents uh, from North Wales, and so every summer we would spend many weeks on the beaches there. And I just noticed that most of the kids had these blue tops on and there aren't really any, you know, major football teams in Somerset. There weren't in the late 70s, early 80s when I was a kid, you know, unless you wanted to support Yeovil Town. And, uh, you know, so so I think it was the summer holidays in Wales, you know. We saw these Everton kids building sandcastles with them. They were talking about players and games. And, and then, of course, you know, early 80s, great things started happening. And that, you know, for a kid who's 8, 10, 12, that cements it in your head. And, you know, certain names for me, like, you know, Sheedy, Radcliffe, Reed. Uh, you know, you name them, Trevor Steve and Neville Southall. So many of those are sort of legendary names for me. And, um, you know, of course, after the the glory years of the mid-80s, it's been a pretty drought um, ever since. But that actually cements, you know, one's love of a team. I think, you know, it's something we might talk on about later, you know, that actually you understand and appreciate the history of a football club and the, the fans and the, and the sort of the brotherhood or the sisterhood of the, the fan base when you're actually not winning. And mm. so, so yeah, it's, I mean, you know, Duncan Ferguson for me, you know, he's just, he epitomizes for me what, what that club is about. And um, yeah, I cut me off because I could, it's, it's fascinating that you've come into through the grandparents. I think North Wales with that connection to Liverpool as well. Post-war, there's that real strong tie, isn't there? A lot of North Wales uh, Evertonians. So I find that really interesting. It comes through your grandparents. It ties straight back into that. It's culture, isn't it? It's almost it's religious, isn't it? Borders on. Well, I suppose it is just as important. I suppose isn't it to most people? But yeah, it's fascinating that. It's really interesting as well because, you know, my parents were very unsported. They had no interest in football. So it wasn't like I got any sort of nudge. Most boys, I don't know what it is like with girls, maybe the same, but a lot of blokes either obviously support their father's team or they rebel against the father and support the opposite team. Um, 
But the lovely thing here is that even in Palmer, there are a lot of Everton fans. Really? And yeah, so there's a there's a kid in a wheelchair I often see around town and he's, you know, gone to Goodison frequently, um, despite being in a wheelchair and living in Palmer. And there are a few, you know, English, Welsh and Irish fans of Everton here. So we're everywhere. <laughs> Get around. It's refreshing to hear, yeah. Um, I'm just, I was definitely fascinated when I heard that and listened to, I think, um, is it you were James Richardson on uh, that podcast and you kind of referenced Everton and I was like, oh, it kind of caught my attention really and um, definitely it's cool to understand just how you came to be an Evertonian really. So we'll move on into sort of ultra now and we're very excited after obviously immersing it this week to understand more of sort of your writing of of um ultra and um, the whole project really and um, i want to start at the beginning though with with the book and jo- you put a message at the front saying obviously john riley was inspiration for that for the book and uh, can you kind of elaborate on that for us yeah very briefly i mean he'll be embarrassed if i if i say anything about this but basically he was he was my editor um for a book uh, which was very hard to live and very hard to write and, you know, was an amazing, amazing editor. And he, when I finished that book, we just spoke about what to do next and he said, I've got an unbelievable idea for you write about Italian ultras. And I thought, great. And then, you know, the book went to auction amongst various publishing houses and his publishing house didn't have the money to buy it. So I kind of slightly feel guilty you know he gave me the idea and then I went to a different publisher and he was very very gracious about it and said no you know if you're a freelance writer you've got to bank what you can and so so that's who he is he's a he's a you know a football obsessed brilliant editor he's a Spurs fan um so can't be perfect no uh but he's an amazing man amazing editor and you know an incredible idea for a book and i'm just amazed it hadn't been done before really as am i it's a there's a number of different books on sort of um fans isn't there um there's one amongst the thugs um i've read um, later last year again it's kind of felt very sort of similar but in a like a totally different angle on it and with a journalist a u.s journalist i think traveling amongst British sort of um, ultras, if we can call them that. And uh, I was kind of seeing sort of like certain similarities with that, but not not something like what you've kind of written with ultra, like solely on Italian ultras, which is kind of from an outsider looking in from the UK. It's um, it's very exciting and it's um, quite a heavy book, I'll be honest with you, to kind of read on that. Um, but to, from the start, again, with the you had like a, a long read on The Guardian. Was that the sort of first genesis for the idea or uh, you know, no like i say the there? idea came from john so i was already sort of working on it and then when when chicho bucci who was a you know one of the leading juventus ultras when he committed suicide i thought that's an extraordinary story partly because it was juventus um and you know that's obviously the biggest team in italy and the droogs you know, the, the name comes from the the Clockwork Orange book. And so they were deliberately sort of pretty, pretty hardcore um, thugs. 
I thought that there's an amazing story. And, you know, he was also from the from the deep south he was also a police informant working for the intelligence services because there was a lot of far right within the Juventus ultras so it was just an extraordinary story and that you know that kind of gave me the the sort of calling card with, with which I could then sell the book basically yeah that was the, the catalyst idea to sort of kind of get on with it and kind of immerse yourself in that and so the with the book, it's obviously this sort of collection of stories and, um, and headlines and hist- historical moments within the ultra world within Italy over the years. And then it's offset with, obviously, you travelled with a, a team called Cosenza um, for, a, for a season, am I right in thinking that? Yeah, it was, a, it was about three seasons, really. But uh... oh, it was a, oh, it was over a span of three seasons. Yeah. So... Um, what was so? How come you chose to kind of write the book in that manner? And um, you have like a hypothesis as to why you chose Casenza uh, early on in the book. Can you kind of explain a bit or elaborate a bit more on that for us? There's lots there. I mean, <clears throat> one thing is I'm really interested in in the structure of books, and you know, whether it's a novel or it's non-fiction, I think you know, books that are structured in an interesting way. Are more interesting to read. So, you know, I split the book into two parts. And in the first part, there's Cosenza, who are in the playoff final to get into Serie B finally. And I leave it as, as, a, as a sort of cliffhanger at 2-1 and then go back to the rest of the game at the end of the first part of the book. So those sort of little games which keep the reader interested. Um, and the thing about... The thing about having the present tense narrative of, of, of following Cosenza spliced with the history of 50 years of the ultra movement was, it's a bit like lots of films do it, don't they? Or lots of novels do it. You know, they sort of, it, here's a bit in the present, here's a bit in the past. And I think sort of, you know, readers, I think, like that and find it interesting. But also I had a technical problem which was that ultras have a very bad reputation because, you know, they are admittedly responsible for lots of murders, missing persons, bank jobs, major drug deals, blah, blah, blah. And yet a lot of ultras would say, actually, that's, you know, those things happen, but it's, you know, less than 1% of what we're about. And actually, how do you portray a movement when none of those things happen, you know, how do you describe, yes, going a thousand kilometres, yes, drinking huge amounts of beer, yes, singing, maybe even, you know, getting slapped or slapping someone, but, you know, nothing nasty happens. It's that, it's that old cliche of, you know, the, the, the tree that falls in a forest makes more noise than a thousand trees that don't. So I wanted to sort of sort of accompany a, a group of people in the present tense for two or three seasons and, and, and really sort of describe not all those those sort of peak newsworthy things, but just what it was like to be with them. And the last thing about Cosenza is that it, it sort of balanced the, the scales because there the ultras are extraordinary. You know, they are very, very left-wing when a movement, the movement now is mostly very far right. 
Um, they do a lot of charitable stuff. You know, they opened up a food bank for the for the hungry and the homeless. They do a lot of peace work. Um, they're very anarchic, very fun, great songs. Um, you know, so they were great fun to be with. But they also, I think, were doing some very interesting alternative stuff. So it sort of managed to balance the book in some way. Do you, do you think that the reason behind them being slightly more left wing and with the like the charitable work and the the positivity that they do do, it was actually more of a, I wouldn't say challenge, but it immersed you even more to to unearth the negativity with it as well. So it was it was kind of you were going in with no bias in that sense, whereas if you went with like a like the Ir of the Chible or someone like that, there is always or at least there's a lot of mainstream. Um, negativity towards that is it a way of telling your own story as well in in the book um is that is that did that play a little part in it as well there were all sorts of sort of underlying other reasons why it made sense to to be with them um you know they've got a lot of very very smart clever people who, you know, have written books and documentaries and really sort of for them being an ultra is such a, a deep part of who they are. And they'd sort of ask themselves for years and decades, who are we? Why are we doing this? What does it mean to be an ultra? So it was, I think it was the deep end of the movement. And the, the other thing is partly chance, you know, the first, I say in the book, the first game I went to with them, uh, they won a match in a stadium where they hadn't won for 58 years. So they then sort of grabbed hold of me and said, right, you are coming to every flipping game with us. <laughs> it's then you, you're kind of seen as their sort of English mascot. Mm. Um, and so, and I just, I just really, it's a fascinating city. It's very cool. You know, if you guys ever have time or the chance to hang out with some people from Cosenza, just do it because it's it's an amazing city. I found the um, what you were going back to there just with the the narrative um, where they're very it's very you know aggressive. The, there's the reputation that they have, and it suits them though, doesn't it? And you said that it was almost that they they reveled in the um, the bad press. But I found sort of by about chapter 10 that the the current ultras or at least even sort of coming out of the 80s it was almost like they were fighting battles that that weren't really theirs and they it, it was just to me it was more confusion as to why they were doing it it was more sort of holding on to those traditions for whatever reason did you did you find that yeah it's it's really interesting isn't it how a how a movement evolves over years and decades and it's very hard as a writer, obviously, to try and condense 50 years into a readable book. Um, and, you know, it changed hugely because when, when the Ultra started in the late 60s, early 70s, it was mostly a far left movement. Most of the Ultras were teenagers, I mean, early teens, 13, 14, 15 um, there was no sort of uniform or livery. There was just this carnivalesque chaos. Um, and now it's the other end of the extreme. You know, it's mostly far right. Uh, a lot of them dress identically. Uh, the leaders tend to be in their 50s and 60s, certainly in the, you know, the big 
clubs. I mean, it's not all of them, but, you know, lots of them are, are more elderly. Um, and to try and trace those changes and how the subculture evolved and why it evolved. And obviously, you know, it's a world in which to become top dog, you get there. One of the ways you get there is just, you know, by by force. And so it becomes naturally, inevitably, more and more extreme. And lots of the old heads I interviewed said, you know, this isn't what what we thought we were doing. You know, we thought we were just, you know, smoking a lot of good grass, getting drunk, singing songs and following our team. So to then see it, and of course, you know, if you want to take control of the terraces and to prove you're more ultra than the other people, and ultra is more beyond, more extreme, more radical, more physically aggressive, intimidating, inevitably it sort of, it becomes more and more, uh, extremist. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting how it changes. It's like a, it seems like a snowball effect from, you mentioned in the 60s, 70s, it was this left-wing sort of liberation movement and it had like an icon, iconography behind it. Um, and we've sort of heard, or I've heard before as Italy being mentioned as the, the, the nation of eternal youth where, you know, people in the 50s, 60s still deem themselves to have sort of that 25, 30-year-old behaviour. Is it a difficulty for for Italians and maybe people from Casenza to let go of their youth um, politically and socioeconomically? Does that have a, a, a defining factor in why this continues in that culture? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I often think, you know, Italy's a well, more than a bit of a gerontocracy, you know, it's, it is, tends to be run by a lot of old men. Um, And that's in a way why the ultra movement started, because there were these sort of pontificating, tactical, professorial types sucking on their pipes and explaining to the masses what football was all about. And these sort of scallywags thought, no, we're going to just you know, stir things up a bit. Um, but you're right. It sounds like sounds like Colosseum culture. It's like uh, the 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 hierarchy of the classes and the 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 pushback against that um, caging of certain sort of types of people in society. You know, the Colosseum thing's interesting because a lot of people have written about the notion of that Roman arena outside the city walls where anything was allowed to happen for two hours and then you had to put it back in its box. So, you know, through centuries you see this sort of uh, acceptance by society that you're allowed to come to the circus, you're allowed to, you know, say anything, do anything heretical, but then you have to behave. And one of the great tensions in the ultra movement is and this is why, again, I find Cassenza really interesting, is can we take our radicalism and our uh, rule-breaking and our pushback against what they consider a sort of a police state, can we take that radicalism from the terraces into the streets of the city? Um, and, you know, that's a very interesting question. Um, it's the only one I'll have during the entire thing now. I... I- 
after listening this week, um, Tobias, like I find it, like you say, you talk about the sort of uniformity of the modern day in, in comparison to that, that sort of that early punk movement and how it changed. And can you talk us through some of those different um, turning points and how the the ultras potentially were manipulated, whether that's by the police um, or by the clubs themselves to cause chaos amongst the streets of Italy and and also like explain a, a bit more on sort of like within Italy I'm so fascinated with this sort of tribalistic nature of towns and it spreads into the football from and it crosses over into the food like like this food needs to be eaten like this and not this way like where does is that what can you like share some sort of insight into why sort of Italy is kind of like that I guess there's a lot there isn't there I mean the, the regionalism of, of Italy is, is sort of well known. They call it campanilismo, so a, a, attachment to one's bell tower. And all through Italian history and literature, there are examples of, you know, one village fighting for centuries against the next door village. And, you know, should the shape of pasta be serrated or smooth edged or, or whatever it is? And these debates go on for literally centuries. Um, and and that's, you know, why that happens, I don't know. You know, I always find it interesting that Italy's got more grape varieties, 352, than the rest of the world put together. It's got more surnames than the whole of China. So there is this sort of very schismatic nature to it that, you know, People always say if you put two Italians in a room, you get three opinions. So there's this sort of <laughs> there's this this sort of defi- always defining themselves against each other, and also, you know, there's it's easy to laugh at it, and I do find it funny. But it's there's a lot of deep sort of admirable stuff there, in, which is about rootedness and belonging, and you know, you can go to the back of beyond and find a village where someone has scrawled on the wall Caput Mundi, you know, we are the capital of the world. And, you know, having grown up in a very small village, I never thought I was in the capital of the world. Um, but but they do here. And there's a pride in where they're from. And there's a sort of a, an organic nature to their societies that, that means that they are proud of where they come from. So that feeds very much into, you know, yeah. the ultra movement. And, it, you know, it, it becomes a l- very very removed from football you know I was amazed when I went there that actually a lot of these ultra groups you weren't allowed to sing the names of any individual player because that was thought to uh you know individualize something that should be a a a group movement so you could sing for the for the name of the team or the color of the shirt and that was it um, and I'd say to people, so why are you going there? You know, if you're not watching the football, why why are we doing a thousand kilometres in this crappy minivan? And 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 they would say, well, it's to it's to show the world that our city is, exists and we love it and it's beautiful and we will sing for the city and the colour and the the shirt. So yeah. so that's that's part of the thing about the the regionalism and the and the diversity but the other part of your question the first part of your question which was about you know how they were nudged or manipulated i mean you know a purist archer would say you know we are pure we're never manipulated we'll do whatever the fuck we want and you know no one can do it but it's interesting that they have sometimes more than sometimes served a purpose for various groups. So, for example, you know, when certain football clubs, and it happens very often, have some pretty huge debts to the Italian state because they haven't paid their taxes, 
when there's a whiff of cordite in the streets and, you know, you've got thousands of ultras causing carnage and it, and it happened in Rome, you know, 15 or so years ago, actually then the government sits up and thinks, oh, hang on, we better write off some of this debt or what they did, they spread it over 15 years or whatever. So, you know, the, the club owners get a benefit from the ultras. If they want to get rid of a player that's very expensive, they need to get them off the books. You know, if the ultras turn against them and it gets nasty and someone's slashing their tyres and spray painting the wall and the player suddenly decides, well, actually, I don't want to be here anymore, and they go and take a pay cut. You know, the ultras have a role. And they, of course, you know, the quid pro quo of that is that, you know, they frequently were slipped hundreds of free tickets on which they made tens of thousands of euros. You know, again, my my sort of purest ultra mates say that's nothing to do with being an ultra. These are the sort of they happen, these stories, but it's not it's not true that it represents who we are. But the other thing about in terms of you know infiltration, manipulation, call it what you will, is that in the certainly in the mid nineties, the terraces were strategically targeted by some uh, far-right political parties. Um, so Forza Nuova, Casa Pound, partly the Northern League, Brothers of Italy, or the National Alliance as it was then. Um, and they saw in those terraces, the, you know, the tens of thousands of people in those terraces, you know, they could be the foot soldiers, they could be the propagandists, they could sing the right songs at the right time. And, you know, there was, there, there's been quite a porous membrane between the, you know, far-right parties and, and certain terraces. That's undeniable. Sort of love of place, isn't it? Can, can I ask you what your thoughts are of the, um, recently with Marseille fans going to um, the training ground? Did you see, have you seen that footage? It's quite disturbing, actually. It's interesting. I, I, I sort of, I often spoke to my sort of ultra mates about those instances you know, it is disturbing. It is, you know, the, the word that defines a lot of the certain ultras is just arrogant, you know, this arrogance to, to sort of storm into a training pitch and, you know, get in someone's face and threaten to do this and that is, you know, it, it's nasty. They would say, and I've, I've frequently asked about this, they, they would say, the players, this is the exact phrase that one Capultra said to me from a very, very tough group. He said, those players have to feel our breath on the back of their necks when they put on our sacred shirt, you know, for them. And, you know, that's, you know, in, in repeating that, I'm not justifying it, but that's what they they believe. And it's it, this is when it gets more than edgy. It's, it becomes a form of fundamentalism. So... And, you know, the, 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 the shirt is the is the sacred thing. And anyone who insults the shirt uh, can be punished. And, you know, define punishment. Is that slash tyres, slap, arson, call, you know, who knows? But so so you get into this sort of religious fundamentalism. Um, and, and, and beyond that, beyond the shirt, one of the interesting things is you notice quite early on, you know, in the movement, as much as singing for a club or the colours, they're singing about the name of their own group. So, you know, the Iriducibili, the Lazio Ultras, would very often sing about the Iriducibili. 
So it becomes, you know, if you can imagine going to church to worship the vicar instead of God or to worship the congregation instead of even the vicar, you know, that's when it sort of turns in on itself and you get this, you know, finger pointing, you're a traitor, you're a traitor, you're not doing it properly. So it's, it is a dangerous mechanism. So with that, like, obviously that in mind and obviously those specific ultra groups and um, Tobias, um, I'd like to focus on some of the specific ultras that you've kind of mentioned within your book. And obviously there's a, a plethora of names there for people to obviously read and learn so much more about. But I've, um, I know myself and David are fascinated with um, the guy from Atalanta. Is it, forgive me if I pronounce this wrong, but is it Claudio Galliberti? Yeah. Can you obviously explain who he is and sort of like his influence on sort of Atalanta's sort of uh, group of fans, I guess? Yeah, probably no ultra knows him by that name. So he's known as Vocha. Um, and he's someone I, I spoke to, but I didn't, I didn't sort of, I mean, I quoted him occasionally, but I, I, I sort of put him in the background for various reasons. Um partly because he wanted to be in the background. He's had a lot of legal problems. Um, but I think a lot of people would say he expresses the the purest notion of what it is to be an ultra. He's, he's very interesting. He's sort of, you know, he's got, he's very, very eccentric. He's got long curly hair, often wears sort of a, you know, a toweling headband. And he's one of those guys who would know the third goalkeeper from the under 18s you know he really you know he is obsessed by football and the the football team and you know Bergamo Atalanta's from Bergamo um you know black and white uh, black and red um what am I talking about the black and blue uh strip um like like a lot of you know clubs they had warring ultra groups and Boccia is one of the very, very few people who said, no, 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 no. The only thing that's important here is the club, the colours. Uh, we're not having any politics here. We're not having far left. We're not having far right. And, you know, by the force of his charisma, he managed to create this fan base. And, you know, Bergamo and Atlanta is a bit like, you know, Napoli, or Newcastle. It's one of those big cities that's only got one team. So it's, you know, the possibility to have a division within the fan base is there because, you know, you've got a, you've got a lot of people supporting the same team. But he's he's an extraordinary man. And, um, yeah, he's, he, I, he's, he's, he's very interesting because he's... He, 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 he's said certain things in the past... Um, you know, there are lots of ultras who have become millionaires through being the head of an ultra thing. And one of them, uh, Ibarone, who's the, you know, 60-something leader of the Milan ultras, one of the leaders, Boccia said to him, you are a cancer. You know, so he is, <clears throat> he's almost like the, the Puritan to the sort of corrupted, you know, Vatican dripping gold, you know, he's almost like the, the reformation of the movement. Um, so he's interesting. Tobias, does the, um, so like uh, Botchan is, he seems like he's got the charisma and he's got the sense of 
identity to be classed as like a political figure and, and in, in a way that I we would see politi- like politicising, even though he doesn't want to politicise, that kind of works sort of a, <laughs> in his favour if he did want to be politicised in a way. It's kind of like a reversal tactic because he obviously has followers and he has people who listen to him. He also has the, the, the sense of self to say things that he deems are morally correct. How long would it be? And, and is it possible that at some point one of these figures, whether they're Galiberti or somebody else, moves into mainstream politics? Oh, yeah, lots of them have. Lots of them have. I mean, you know, there's a famous guy from the from the Bergamo Ultras, the Atlanta Ultras, who's a, who's a, a league politician. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of them have. And <clears throat> they have a lot of problems trying to juggle those two worlds because, you know, the Ultras are the archetypal sort of, you know, anti-orthodoxy, anti-state, anti-bourgeois. So to make that leap from being an ultra to going into politics is 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 not quite as easy as it might sound. But yeah, you know, like I say, there's a, the example of Atalanta. One of the when I went to Catania, one of the the leaders of, of of an ultra movement is now the mayor of the city. So you know, if you are a sort of one of these charismatic sort of folk heroes that the streets throw up it, it's not impossible that you could you can make a political career not many of them do because they have no interest in that but have they found it hard to function um certain groups um since the pandemic have you found that there's been there's been a change yeah i've written a lot about this but for italian papers about what the ultras are doing during lockdown and it's it's really interesting because in some ways the lockdown has proved what they've said for decades, you know, they've said football without fans has no meaning. You know, it's sterile. If all it is is footballers and TV and us in our slippers on the sofa, there's no taste to it. There's no. And suddenly, lo and behold, we've got that scenario and it's proved right. You know, we all know, I think, that, you know, football is not the same thing without the fans. So that's one thing. Also, financially, you know, clubs are suffering we know that the percentage of club income that comes from the box office, from the gate receipts, declined exponentially through the 90s and noughties. But actually, take that away, it's still important for loads of clubs. Um, And the other thing they've been doing is certain ultra groups have been really sort of looking after their own, their suburbs, their, their streets, distributing, you know, food to food banks. They've been distributing medicine, PPE. You know, there's every time there's an earthquake or a volcano or a flood or whatever it is, the ultras will always be there. And this has sort of given them a chance to 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 show that. Outside of that, do you find that maybe, say, let's, for example, Syria, do you find that maybe um, without the fans being there, um, there's maybe a certain sense of um, a weight being lifted by certain players, you know, with maybe racial abuse. Um, it's almost like a, a level playing field now. Do you find that maybe that on the other side of that has happened? It's been quite refreshing for some players. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I can't think, Sarah, of anyone. Certainly no one said it. And I can't imagine 
any player would want to play without fans. I mean, the racism thing is is, is fascinating and incredibly, you know, surprisingly nuanced and, and complicated, you know, for, for, for a topic that, you know, is so clearly, forgive the pun, black and white, you know, it's so clearly wrong. There's actually all sorts of sides to it. Um, so, that it, you know, leaving aside the, the racism thing, I, th- I think certainly it's it's true, and this is true in in British football as well. I think you know it's changed the style of play. It's it's made players less urgent. You know the backward pass that fans will be screaming at you not to do is kind of permissible because it's the safe option. There are less dribbles. There's you know that is very evident. I think, um, but but that that's true everywhere. On to from sort of specific ultras, I'd like to kind of um, ask you about some specific moments. In um, I know David and Sarah both got a couple of moments that I'd like to ask you specifically uh, in relation to recent um, Italian football and history. Uh, I don't know who wants to go first, but yeah. So my mine one really is a uh, Emmanuel Calao and the perceived sort of is Max Fitchin. Was just scandal in sort of quotations and, and how that made headlines over here in 2018 and, and there was not really from the looks of the the investigation there wasn't really that much to pin it down to him and, and then the underlying extremities that get brushed under the carpet I just wanted to see your opinion being you know being a Palmer fan what what was the feeling at the club and, and within the fan base for a, a, a ban that didn't Maybe I, I personally think was maybe a bit over the top. I wanted to hear your opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, so so this was the story when you know Palmer had been bankrupted and had you know one of those stupid seasons where they had three different owners in one season and one of them you know the club was sold to some businessman in Slovenia for a pound and then went to an Albanian oil magnate and it was one of those absurd stories bankrupt, went down to Serie D, got promoted from Serie D, got promoted from Serie C. So they're in Serie B. No club's ever been promoted three years running. Palmer were in the playoffs against Spezia. And the Palmer striker sent a text message to one of his mates that simply said, uh, don't, it was a bit vulgar, I won't translate, but you know, basically said, don't, don't be a pain in the neck, mate. Meaning, yeah. you know, we want we want to go up. Yeah, we want to go up. So don't make it hard for us. In a, in a kind of friend, like a mate to mate type of conversation. Exactly. Where... And and so I remember this sort of you know this euphoria of of the club suddenly going up, going up, going up. And then I think I can't remember whether it was the next day this story broke that the striker had sent a message saying you know go easy on us more or less. And to be honest, my, my feeling about that story is, you know, a stupid text message to write, but there's not much more to it than that. Yeah. You know, there are so many match-fixing stories in Italian yeah, football yeah. that that one was <laughs> tiny. And, you know, it's good that yeah, the yeah. authorities are on high alert for it, but <laughs> by the standards of Italian football scandals, it's, it's a, you know... Needle in a haystack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sarah, do you want to go ahead? Mine was just that um, that's probably quite an iconic uh, Maserati Rue Costa photograph now, um, sort of looking out 
towards the fan base. Um, do you think that that had the potential to to maybe change the mindset of the future generations, or do you think it was just sort of seen as just a, a brief moment and nothing more? Yeah. So, are you talking about the one in nine, in two thousand and five? With the yeah, and they've got all the red sort of flares going off and on each other's shoulders. That was from memory. That was the quarter final of the Champions League. So you've got a derby uh, between Inter and and Milan, and Milan were winning one nil, and then so many flares were thrown onto the pitch that the match was was abandoned. And you know what always happens in these cases happened then. There was outrage and scandal and great sucking of teeth. But if you're one of the inter-ultras who were throwing those on, you think, we've won. You know, that's... So, you know, the, the vast majority of, of, of football fans think this is disgraceful. But the ultras would be sort of pleased with what they'd done. And, you know, not all of them. The other thing is that, you know, there are constant debates and arguments and... You know, it's as schismatic and as divisive in the ultra world as it is in the outside world. So, you know, it's very hard to say what the whole ultra movement would say. But the comparison there and was was from a year before with a, what was called the Derby, the dead baby, if you remember, you know, where the game between Rome and Lazio was abandoned um, because a rumour went round that a, that a baby had been killed accidentally by the police. And, you know, frequently the, the, there have been attempts to stop games. So to talk about, you know, Ibocha, he, he was famous when Sandri was, was shot dead by a policeman for sort of kicking down the plexiglass and making sure that the football didn't go ahead. So the actual sort of, again, it's this sort of slightly twisted logic whereby People saying we're obsessive football fans, but sometimes we don't want the football to go on. So would it change attitudes? I I don't know, really. It certainly changed attitudes in terms of, you know, the police and the the state and the forces of order thinking, you know, we might have to make sure this never happens again. But actually the ultras, I think a lot of them think, well, let's let's keep trying to trying to do this and make a name for ourselves. I have one uh, final point I'd like to make. Uh, I'd like to ask you about Tobias. Is um, seems like there's like a we've talked about partisan tribalism before on the pod, um, and my my team, my Italian team is, is Roma because of actually the I didn't I didn't want I didn't want to be Lazio. I didn't want to be associated. I you know growing up in the nineties watching Italian football. And then through the 90s into the 2000s, I became aware of their politics, which actually drew me away from them and drew me towards their rivals. Um, it's interesting that by trying to claim a type of individual, are you also pushing away a type of individual? And you're always going to have that tribalism because by being so intense, you're always going to find somebody who's so intense in the other direction as well. Yeah, it's the it's sort of magnets, isn't it? It's sort of repel and a, attract. I mean, the Lazio Roma thing is interesting. I mean, there's a lot you could say about that, obviously, but um, it's particularly complicated there. And it, there's a lot. Liverpool, strangely, has has 
a real role in in changing. A lot of the Cosenza fans are Roma fans. So quite a lot of the people I interviewed repeatedly for the book went to the famous final in Rome against Rome, uh, you know, the Grobelar shaky legs final. And um, and they they sort of took those Liverpool songs back to Cosenza. And so, you know, there's this sort of Chinese whispers of the songs they sing. But also there was a lot of a lot of violence at, at, at that at that game. Um, and a lot of people have hypothesised that, you know, one of the contributing things of Heisel was Liverpool fans met another Italian team a year later and thought, right, we're going to get our own back on the Italians. Um, I'm not really answering your question, but there's there's a lot of really interesting sort of, I mean, I think what you're asking is, you know, is is there that sort of, push back the attraction and the repulsion, how that changed. And I think you can see that in sort of, you know, the final in 1984, the final in 1985. Um, and, and, and again, you know, the, the Lazio-Rome thing is interesting because, you know, it used to be a bit left against right, but now I think most people would say they're both far right. So politically, there's actually quite a lot of overlap between them. A show that you featured in a few days ago, actually, Um, I can't recall the name of it right now, but it was about um, rivalries, say, for example, in a city, and that it's more the sense of the similarities that cause those, um, that, that sort of very you know, that hatred, that sort of deep-rooted hatred, and it's more that the other the other is more similar as opposed to different. And it's really interesting when you think of it, think of it especially, I suppose, in a city like Liverpool. It, it, it sort of makes sense in it, I suppose, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's that old... ...thing again, isn't it? Yeah, it is, although that that's more differences. You, I think you were asking about sort of whether it's similarities, yeah. isn't it? And, yeah. and I remember when I was a teenager, I was obsessed by by the great Herman Hess, and I read everything he'd ever written. And, and one of the things that always stayed with me, he said, you know, what you hate in another person is is the part of yourself that you hate, which is kind of a bit of a truism, but it's, it is true, isn't it? And sort of, um, so, so yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of that, the similarity. It'd be much easier to sort of hate someone who's completely different. Um, there's none of the sectarianism here because everyone is you know, Catholic. So you don't get that sort of Rangers Celtic thing. Um, yeah, I could, I could talk for, for years on such things. Cause I find it, you know, not being a Liverpudlian, but being, you know, a devout toffee. I, I kind of, I, I, I look at the city with possibly slightly different eyes and ears to you guys. So with that because we that's hence why we did that that podcast about terrorist tribalism because we found that there were elements of the fan base sort of will be similar with the ultras where there are elements of those that they despise each other and it's very it, it i felt anyway the last few seasons it was it was very much that you know same thing it's like us you know we i'm more of an evertonian because of maybe my heritage or being born here and lesser than than you might be it's all that so it ties into it doesn't it it's absolute nonsense i think but you you'll know the situation much better than me, but I I always loved looking at those cup finals in the eighties where 
you know, red and blue were sort of in the same stadium. It was mixed up and there wasn't, you know, horrific violence. You know, there were things happened. But, you know, I love the fact that a lot of the sort of commemoration for things like Hillsborough take place on both sides, which, you know, is unthinkable for most most sort of city rivalries here. Um, I mean, Freud called it, um, he, had a, he had a strange thing for it. It was the, the narcissism of minor difference. So that, you know, the, the more like to someone you are who's nearby, the more you'll big up the tiniest differences. So like you say, you know, yeah. I, was, I was at the game in 1974 in the snow and you weren't. So I'm a greater fan than you. I'm from just outside of uh, Liverpool, so I've experienced that just being across the water, um, Tobias. So I definitely like, like, yeah, I'm not not one of them. Basically, <laughs> I've got a different colour bin, for example. Uh, but before we wrap up um, to go into the infamous quickfire round, what I'd love, and I really enjoyed this um, in the pod um, yesterday, because it's as you get through, uh, not the pod, sorry, the, your audio book of Ultra, it's very heavy with all these different examples of um, Ultra turning points, moments, um, sort of um, tab, well, not tabloids, like headlines of people being killed by the police and stuff like that. And you mentioned about the Bruce Tuckman theory of like the formation of groups and then the spread of ideas. And it just it just got me thinking about so many things with what we've seen recently in the US um, um, with the last um, president. And um, I think you even reference, I think there's a Nick Griffin reference in from the UK standpoint of like these far right, how it's become so organised and, and those ideas spread between these groups into becoming this sort of, like looking at it on a larger scale, like, a, like the... This, this, the spectrum of governments and populism and um, how that, that centre may move towards the right, away from what was like more, centra, more central, if I can call it that. Um, I don't know if you want to talk a bit about um, the sort of those ideas that you share to, in, later in the book and the sort of that communalism um, aspect that you're quite passionate about um, as well. I mean, that for me is one of the most fascinating things about the ultras or any subcultures is the group dynamics. You know, who is the leader? How are they chosen? Who's an insider? Who's an outsider? How do they deal with heretics? How do they impose orthodoxy? All those things that we as, you know, as a couple or as a families or as a fan base or, you know, as any kind of group, subconsciously is asking those questions and you know i i've set up a couple of communities and lived communally for many many years so i'm 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 very sort of interested in living together and, and what happens to groups and tookman was a he was a, he was a psychologist who was really interested in why his students were always procrastinating and uh, you know sort of worked out various theories and he, he was an interesting guy but this this thing and it sounds a bit trite because it's rhyming but the idea that um group formation is you know the group forms and then storming so everyone is you know having all these ideas and then it normalizes itself and then it performs 
and then actually it dies and you mourn. So you get that forming, storming, norming, forming, mourning kind of thing going on. Um, and, you know, one can say that's a bit trite, not true, but the group dynamic, I think, is is fascinating. You know, why why groups behave in certain ways, um, how they make decisions. Uh, you know, I just think human beings are fascinating individually, but put them together and say this cause is sacred and some really weird things are going to happen. Uh, and they may be really good things and they may be really bad and normally you know, as we know from religious groups and as you say, you know, extremist groups, there can be some pretty dark stuff as well. So, so yeah, it's just, I'm, I'm just fascinated by, by society. Really fascinated myself and, and, and the effect of being in a crowd as well, which you discuss in the book and like how that in, like influences all these people because they've collectively joined in on that thing. It's, it was, it got me thinking about so many different things, I was amazed. Guys, did you feel any empathy after sort of three seasons of hanging around with these people? Obviously, listening to the stories, it's, I mean, it is terrifying most of the time, but did you feel any sort of connection and empathy with them? Yeah, I mean, certainly the Cosenza Ultras, you know, they're great mates. I'm in touch with them. I still go to games, bizarrely enough, annoyingly, you know, for the first time in years and years, Cosenza drew Palmer in the... Uh, you know, Copitalia. So, uh, you know, in, if it wasn't behind closed doors, I would have had, a, you know, 100 people showing up here expecting lunch and <laughs> gallons of beer. In fact, they phoned me half an hour before kickoff saying, we're all coming, we're, we're just outside, where are you? <laughs> and my wife turned white. But, yeah, so, you know, so, yeah, I mean, that crowd I love and I sort of, I, I, you know, I love football and drinking beer and singing and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So with a lot of them, I really do. I have a revulsion against certain groups and, you, you know, you can guess from the book or, you know, you can guess anyway who they are because, like I say, they just drip arrogance. There's a sort of a – they're gangs, you know, they're sort of they're, – they're criminal gangs is what they are. Okay, uh, thanks for that and um... – I just want to kind of say you can relax a little bit now. Um, we're going to do the quick fire round and look to wrap up. But Tobias, oh, you can't relax, that, Tobias. You know, yeah. it's, it's the intense bit now. You know everything about Italian football. We haven't even touched on the Costa Nostra. I wanted to go right into the mafia stuff. So <laughs> no, it's yeah. going to be another hour. Do you want to? No, that'll be in like another two no, hours. Okay. We'll have to get Tobias back <laughs> yeah. on to just discuss that, I guess. So all this is, uh, Tobias, is just eleven questions. Short answers or one-word answers for whatever the questions are. And if I mess up any of the pronunciations on some of these things, because they're from the group, uh, forgive me and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, So the first one is, what is your favourite Italian footballing word, proverb or phrase? Uh, Dribbling. (laughs) Dribbling. And what does that mean? Uh, is that the obvious? Yeah, no, I've got to tell you this story. I've probably got other ones, but this came to mind because I, I used to do uh, the Italian match of the day on TV and, and it went to, to a 
penalty and they, I heard in my earpiece, going to Tobias Jones in the Stadio Tardini. And I, instead of saying dribbling, which is obviously the English word, I said, I Italianized and I said dribblaggio. And so ever <laughs> since then, all my friends have, you know, teased me that I sort of Italianized an English word. So dribbling <laughs> for me is, is, is my favourite one. Wonderful. Um, question number two. Um, okay, Cassancelli or Cassancelli, with or without pancetta? And forgive me if I pronounced that wrong. Cassancelli, what's that? It's a, I think it's a pasta dish in, from by Atalanta. And is it Brescia? Brescia. Brescia. It's, it's up in Lombardia. Yeah. It's up that way, I think. But they both eat it. Never heard of it. One fan group has it with pancetta, the other doesn't. But anyway, I'll <laughs> move on. <laughs> I'm a vegetarian, so I, I, no, oh, no me. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Carrots or sprouts? Yeah. <laughs> Carrots um, or sprouts? <laughs> Question number three. Uh, what is one piece of advice you would have for any aspiring writers? Find your voice. Your own voice. Question number four. Which Italian team would you twin with Everton? Cosenza. <laughs> I was hoping you going to say that. Um, question number five, um, Chiesa or Crespo? Crespo. Your first game is question number six. In Italy or anywhere? Do, do Italy, we'll do Italy. Oh, it was Parma Inter in the Coppa Italia and Parma won 6-1 or 6-0. And bear in mind, I'm coming to Italy in the 90s having watched, you know, Howard Kendall's third time in charge. I think, was it Walter Smith already there? I mean, you know, Everton was not playing good football in the mid-90s, as you know. I go to, I go to Parma and I see 6-0 against, or 6-1 against Inter Milan. I thought, man, this is a different sport. <laughs> what was your first Everton game? Just to flip it the other side. Yeah. What was your first? What Everton was the game? first game? I think it was in. It was at the. What was the before Summers the Dell, at the Dell, nineteen eighty-three. I think four. <laughs> Did Everton win or not? Yeah, yeah. I have a terrible yeah. memory, so that's why I. <laughs> You've got such good... My best mate was a Southampton fan, so... And it's the one of the closest sort of, you know, grounds to a Somerset. Nice. Number seven, one thing about Italian football that you would bring into English football? I'm still here, so I know it's supposed to be... <laughs> no, yeah, this is really important. It's a good one. Yeah. Can't yeah, no, be no, food, yeah, can't be food. This is Sarah's question, this one. From the football, from the actual played game. Anything? Anything. Anything. Controversial. Oh, if I get this wrong, it's going to bug me for the rest of my life. This is... <laughs> we'll soundbite yeah. this 25 seconds this and, in, and trailer it. Yeah. I think this I is... want to keep this in. It is. What would, I, what would I bring from Italian football? Yeah, I think the songs. I think the songs... They've got some excellent songs. That's what I love about being a fan here is that the songs are sensational. Very creative, yeah. There. Okay, number eight is uh, Caravaggio or Baglione. And again, forgive me if I pronounced that wrong. Caravaggio. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> pleased with that one. <laughs> number nine is favourite Serie A kit. 
of all time you can obviously um i think it'd have to be the be the palmer be the palmer kit the iconic palmer yeah yeah the palmer lap one yellow blue yeah yeah Oh god, they're not getting easier. Actually, your your ultimate Italian player, <laughs> Totti. Yes, and then num number eleven. I think we kind of covered it, but I saved it till last. Why Everton? Uh, it's people's club. Amazing, tough answer. Um, Tobias, um, I'll let everyone else say the thanks, but I thank you so much for your time um, today and. Thanks for um, responding to us and uh, coming on the pod. Um, it means so much, and uh, we've been so excited to have you on. And it was uh, a pleasure reading your book. And I'm going to be one of your biggest ambassadors in Canada. Thank you so much for coming on, Tobias. It's been a pleasure listening to you tell your stories. That you um, you obviously go into more detail in, in the underworld of Italian football, ultra, um, and yeah, ever again, you know, that's it. Now my football manager saves a sort of for the next ten years. I'm Casenza. <laughs> If we ever if we ever get over that way, we'll Same. definitely sort of try and try and hit you up. There's going to be an Everton Palmer, <laughs> like a friendly, like our Everton to Chile, to Cosenza Everton sort of mid-season friendly. If you build it, they will come. You know, I think. That's... <laughs> yeah, but thank you, thank you so much, Tobias. Yeah, same for me. Again, thanks for thank thank you for immersing yourself within the culture and for for putting it down on paper so that people can actually you know, learn about this culture. It's absolutely fascinating. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, not at all. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't I didn't have time to tell you about the nightmare. When we moved back to Italy in 2017, you remember Everton were in the Europa League and I was, I was you know, I just got back here because we'd been in England for a long time and I was telling her, Everton's the team, Everton's the team and they played flipping up Atlanta. And it was in red job <laughs> because their stadium was being was right next to Parma. And I couldn't do it because I was filming a documentary in Sicily at the time. But I said to all my mates, you want to go? You want to go and see Everton? Bloody 5-0, wasn't it? <laughs> this was, this was like um, 2017 was like when Papu was getting mainstream, wasn't it, as well? And my brother-in-law is a Milan fan. He's, he's, he's from, he's actually from, his family from Naples and he's a Milan fan. So um, I did near the end of that for about two years. <laughs> so that was, yeah. we all have our episodes. We all have our efforts in Europa League stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think between us, we'll all definitely be over at some point. I've been to the definitely. last few summers, so I'll definitely be up. Yeah, come and see me in Palmer. Okay. Definitely. Yeah, definitely, definitely look me up. Hopefully, we'll be able to go to a game. Yeah.